House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. And of course, I'm Al Warren. Now we've got Mr. Michael Hawley here on the right and he's been he's been a tv star at the last so while being on the history channel and stuff like that you know so oh it was fun it was fun it was the uh, history's greatest mysteries i got to be an expert at the jack the ripper episode so they have they have pretty low standards <laughs> of course of course you know i i paid them they didn't pay me so it's yeah. not a high threshold in what they call experts <laughs> well, that's right <laughs> the history well no it's good it's good it's good to be on tv you know, I do it once in a while myself, so, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Um, well, that's good to hear. So uh, we continue the week with writers, and uh, today we've got a really good one, I think, a really interesting writer here. So let's welcome to the show E.C. Haynes, where we're going to talk about his new book called The Bus to Beulah. So thanks for being here, E.C. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about this book here first. Let's see. Um, where did it come from for you, like the idea of behind this book? Well, that's, you know, the, the typical uh, and often asked question, where do you get your ideas? I just read a book, actually, where somebody referred to a response that Stephen King made to a person when they asked that. And his answer was, well, mostly in Utica, New York. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, really, you know, why this book? Um, uh, my first two novels were all based on personal experiences, on work that I had done in, in, in institutions and organizations that I was involved in in Washington, D.C. and Raleigh, North Carolina, and, uh, you know, the whole area in the southeast. This book was really um, based on an article that I read a couple of years ago in BuzzFeed, uh, article was titled The Coyote, about a man who basically uh, had worked for the state of North Carolina in the economic development, trying to get labor for the farmers in North Carolina and got eventually fired, but then set up a company, a business to get uh, visas um, for workers so they could come in and uh, Based on a lot of the information that I read in the article, um, I became fascinated because I didn't realize how vital um, migrant and immigrant labor was to North Carolina. Um, it's like the fifth or, or sixth largest importer, if you would, of labor, particularly agricultural labor. California, of course, being far and away the largest, and then Texas, then Florida, then, uh, you know, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia, uh, and maybe in that order. It's, it's hard to get good data on this. But um, it was interesting to me uh, learning about this man and what he had set up and the incredible amount of corruption of indifference um, involved in the labor and how essential it is. And I mean, North Carolina, like frankly, all those other states uh, would go out of business without um, migrant labor, uh, immigration and, and otherwise. 
Um, so it was in, especially the fact that the man eventually was indicted on over 65 felony counts and served prison time, pleaded, pled guilty to a number of them. So I was interested and found that North Carolina needs something or has about 180 to 200, 220,000 people every year to come in and help plant, harvest, and clean, ship produce, etc. That's big uh, numbers. Crop. Yeah, well, and, and as I say, we're only fifth or sixth. California would be in the millions. Um, <laughs> uh, so it, it was fascinating to me how people would be talking about immigration, which is obviously a very hot topic in every state, uh, people coming in and taking our jobs. That's just absolute BS. Right, right. Americans won't take the jobs. In fact, uh, I started doing a lot of research uh, based on the guidance of a of my hero, Mark Twain. He was visited by a young writer named Rudyard Kipling and uh, in Connecticut, and he gave him some advice at the end, which I enjoyed. He said to Mr. Kipling, get your facts first, and then you can distort them any way you please. <laughs> so following his advice, at least from the beginning, I did about eight months to a year's worth of research, uh, which is extensive. Um, and found, among other things, that the 1986 Immigration Reform Act, which uh, basically disallowed uh, American companies from hiring undocumented workers, made exceptions, of course, uh, and gave visas called, you know, in some cases, the temporaries are H-2A for agricultural or H-2B, which is really things like hospitality, waiters and waitresses and okay. hotel workers and that kind of thing. Um, and there are tens of thousands that this individual brought into the state at a huge profit. I mean, uh, tens of millions of dollars just to get these visas, which he had set up. And so it seemed to me that when you have that much money and those kinds of uh, you're dealing with those kinds of individuals um, it's rife for a lot of uh, corruption and and potential uh, crimes of passion if you would uh, so you know I, after doing that research I created a storyline of a young woman coming from Mexico after educa after her education, which um, her family had provided. Her mother and father had both been killed by cartels, raised by her aunt and her uncle in the United States in North Carolina, who had a green card, sent her money for education. So on her way to live with her uncle after graduating from a school that he paid for, um, and she had a 1B, which is a multiple-year visa. Uh, while at a rest stop, she overheard two women talking and uncovered a human trafficking operation and 
the the man who came to pick up the two other women prostitutes um, panicked and took her with him because oh. he was afraid she would spill the beans. So she was kidnapped, and then um, the bosses, if you would, of the man who picked up the other two women, uh, when her uncle inquired about where she was because she was late and should have been there, said she never got on the bus in Mexico. Okay. So then find her before she dies. Obviously, the article, uh, you know, attracted your attention, and you started following up on the article and research and stuff. Um, so, in in a sense, the story's got a really powerful subtext to it. There's a plot underneath the, let's say, entertainment or the the storyline. Yeah, that, it's it's, you know, it's like it's like whoever the set designer is for a movie or a play that. The the neighborhood uh, involves and revolves around um, all of these essential workers who are part of the fabric of life in this country. Uh, uh, there's an organization, there was an organization that I spent some time with called Student Action with Farm Workers uh, at Duke University, um, my alma mater, and... Uh, they are there specifically to work for the benefit um, of all of these workers who come to America. And uh, there are all kinds of laws that require uh, housing and treatment and so forth. And yet, in so many cases, uh, they're either ignored or the the organizations, the, the agencies that are responsible for monitoring it, just turn the other way. And uh, it, it's something that people should be aware of. The woman who was the head of this organization uh, sent me a copy of a book that she had edited and was published by the University of Texas uh, uh, Press called The Human Cost of Food. And it is a very revealing, um, tough to get through about the plight of the people who come to this country uh, to support their families back home because most of them are, you know, uh, supposed to be temporary residents and they send money back to Mexico or Central America, Latin America, wherever. And it's a very revealing um, description of people that are, in some cases, almost indentured servants. Do you worry that when you cover such a, um, as you were saying, hot topic, like a, a thing like the immigration and, and stuff like that with today's climate and being out in the public and also with everybody, everybody has access to you, so to speak, nowadays with the Internet. Does that sort of um, bother you any? No. I mean, I mean, from what standpoint? That somebody would say, um, I don't like a a book of fiction that portrays, you know, some people in a bad way. Well, you know. Well, uh, uh, it, it, not so much that, you know, because when you when you touch off on on immigration or anything that's slightly political, it's it's yeah. so extreme right now. Someone, you know, it, someone's um, can be doing any sort of a show, um, and all of a sudden it gets 
cast as, well, this is just, you know, liberal, you know, whatever, or this is, for the, you know, <laughs> sure. you hear all that stuff. I mean, even the Ghostbusters right. with the, with the, all oh, the, yeah, you know, know. Know. look at the attack they got. This is like, and I'm thinking, well, wow, that's crazy, but it's just there. So that's, that's, that's kind of what I mean. If you didn't, you could write about yeah. a lot of fictional subjects. You don't have to go into anything so close to, to way we are now. So I'm just saying that with, with such a current topic, um, you know. Well, that's the fun to me. <laughs> I mean, yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, what, you know, what am I'm not going to, um, I'm not going to, uh, you know, deal in, in fairy tales. Uh, I, I was drawn to it with a fascinating thing. I think uh, when people in this country, you know, are screaming and hollering about immigration and the terrible problems, I'd say, well, folks, <laughs> the next time you sit down for a meal, you better understand that that is the only reason that you've got food on your table. Now, I don't preach in the book. I mean, the the basic the book is trying to save the life of this woman before she disappears forever. And there are um, uh, entry of uh, cartels and drugs and murders and all that kind of things. And the, the protagonist in this, uh, Will Mosier, who is the sheriff um, of the county where uh, the uncle, where the girl's uncle lives, and he's brought into it. And he is desperate to find her because of a debt that he owes to her uncle, a personal debt. And, uh, you know, so the, the, really the question is, how do you, how do you, uh, how do you go against the kind of, of, um, vice that is involved in so many cases like this uh and still and still prevails so he eventually calls on a a friend of his that he knew when he was in the military when he was in vietnam a guy who has got a national international security firm who also has a big facility in north carolina and they go together uh, with whatever means necessary at some point, uh, in order to get her. So, you know, this. So you have, you have, re, you're researching like two big areas then. You're researching the immigration plus, uh, cartels. That's right. And human trafficking. There was a, one of the studies, one of the studies that I, um, I uncovered early on, uh, that the Research Triangle Institute in, North Carolina between Raleigh Durham. Um, one of the early, uh, studies I got was identifying labor trafficking in North Carolina, uh, done for the National Institute of Justice. And <laughs> it is a, a, a most revealing thing. And, and, you know, um, everybody knows the problems and in some cases, um, it's not to their political benefit to solve the problems. So they selectively ignore certain things. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the thousands of people who are here, um, who, are, who are living here and working, um, are, are by law supposed to be housed 
and the quality of the housing and the uh, the amenities are required by state and federal law. But in the words of General Eisenhower, that which is not inspected deteriorates. And so if the Department of Labor or local health, you know, health departments or law enforcement um, say they don't have the manpower or the time or it's not my job or whatever, then some individuals are going to take advantage of uh, a whole heck of a right, lot of people. Right. Hopefully that comes through without, I'm, I'm not writing a um, nonfiction, uh, you know, tell all. I'm not doing a, you know, a Sinclair Lewis, the jungle kind of a book. Uh, my, I'm focused on finding a young woman before she is, uh, before she disappears forever and all of the mechanisms to do that. The book is written on a, instead of a chapter, it's written on a day by day and then hour by hour basis over 12 days. And so it's pretty more of a, uh, high intensity in a way if it's going to be like that. So that would, that right. would grip the right. reader. Well, I hope so. <laughs> gripping, gripping the reader is a good plan. I mean, you know, I, I, uh, I, I long ago gave up the, uh, dream of a Pulitzer. I just as soon, uh, uh, keep somebody awake all night or, uh, on the beach all day. So that's what I was going for. Something that's really exciting. Well, my books, what I do is I try to get them to sleep. So if they read it and fall asleep, you know, I've done my job. They never get through the book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it takes forever. You know, I, I personally like a good grip that keeps me up all night, but that's a different story. Um, but yeah. <laughs> so when you're putting this together, I just wonder, so now your characters, do you, like, cause like, we, we talk to a lot of fiction writers. Uh, both Mike and I do nonfiction and, and all that. I know this is based on a lot of true, true events or true. There's a lot of reality to this, but your characters themselves, what kind of way do you develop them or where do you get them from? Like kind of where, cause we hear people say, you know, they're like, they describe their characters as family or whatever. What's, what's your description on your characters? Well, in the, I, it's a little different for each book. In the first book, um, a guy who in North Carolina who did a review of the book and interviewed me on television, he said, the main character in this book is you, Reg. And I said, well, you could say that. Uh, it was very personal. And, and all the people in that could be, when were, you know, frankly, uh, related to other people um, that were obvious. This is less so. The the character of Will um, is a man who uh, came from a uh, an extraordinarily prosperous family and chose to go his own way. Uh, was in the military. Was in Vietnam as I was. Uh, he spent you know three four years in the in the army. Um, he kept up with friends of that, and he went into law enforcement. Um, he lived in North Carolina. He was involved in North Carolina politics, so 
it wasn't a stretch for me to create people that I have known um, and and become friends with or uh, associated with in various uh, functions uh, and organizations in this state particularly and around the country in Texas as well um, uh, to, to sort of fill in uh, people that are very real to me and you know, not really fictitious, but so are you saying are. that your protagonist is not one of those Gen Ys or uh, Gen Xs? Is more like a baby boomer? Yeah, he, exactly. He is a baby boomer. He's near the. He's 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 in this particular book. He's, um, you know, thinking about retirement, but not okay, quite. Yeah, he's been there a long time, and he has a lot of power. Among other things, his family business he is still actively involved in even though he's in law enforcement so he has access to things like a jet and friends and high places in fact one of the cartel guys who was saying we'll just buy him off uh, one of the uh, North Carolina associates said you better bring a lot of money because he's you can't buy him off you know, and if you want to separate him from the governor of the state, you better have a crowbar. So when you, uh, when he decided to champion this case, uh, was it like a small case? What what hooked him to that case? A debt. He owes he owes the girl Maria's. He owes her uncle a huge personal debt, <laughs> and his wife, you know, uh, Tomas, the uncle saved his daughter's life at one point when she was young. Oh. And so uh, so Will, the sheriff's wife, Lana, reminds him of that. And while he is a stickler for uh, law and detail and proper, con- you know, correct, she says, you know, sometimes Lady Justice has to raise the uh, blindfold to really find justice. So... That's when he calls uh, a friend of his that he knew in Vietnam who runs a, a huge military, you know, uh, national security firm, international security, providing intelligence work and protective services to high-worth individuals and companies and has a big operation in North Carolina. And uh, So he would know a little bit about the cartels and understand the background of those. He knows he knows a lot about everything, and he operates in a way that will just say trips along the line of um, <laughs> I won't say legality, but let's let's he gets the job done with more or less whatever it takes. Which, if you're dealing with these people and you want to play footsie. Um, you're not going to win, and they they know one way to deal. So uh, he has the muscle and the knowledge uh, in order to deal with it. So the question is, I'm I'm you know they want to get her back, and so if it's going to take um, uh, creativity and muscle to do it, then so be it. Hmm. Well. I'm- 
So when someone when someone picks up the book, takes it home and reads it, what is it you want them to take away from it? Well, I want them to first have a have a a fun and interesting experience as a thriller. I want them to say, "Gosh, that was a that was a heck of a ride." You know, it's uh, it's like when they leave the fair and they say, "Do you remember that one whiplash thing? That was fabulous." I'd I'd like them to feel this was a great story. Uh, that these were interesting people and um, interesting situations and um, maybe learn a little bit about uh, a, a part of this country and this part of this economy um, that's, quite frankly, after the research I've done, <laughs> extremely misunderstood. You yourself, it sounds like you, you picked up a lot going through this book. Did you learn anything um, in your research that you were surprised about? Yeah, I learned a lot of things that really shocked me. The magnitude and the importance of this part of the population in this country. Uh, I just never realized quite how big it was. Um, you know, if you bring in 200 plus, and nobody really has accurate, 200, 220,000 people, into this state in order to to maintain a viable agricultural business or millions in California, I mean, uh, the country would fold without them. And yet they're sort of blasphemed and cursed and everything else in a lot of the media, you know, right. the border problems and all this kind of stuff. Well, you know, how bloody hypocritical can you be? I doubt in, you know, in, in cities in Winston-Salem, I doubt there's a lawn being mowed or a roof being put on or sheetrock going up that isn't being done by people, uh, in most cases, from South Order. 10, 2011, there were 300,000 people in North Carolina out of business. The law requires that um, jobs that are going to be on agricultural, for example, um, have got to be offered to American citizens first. There were a total of 18 who, who applied for and were referred for those jobs to the farmers. And at the end of the season, there were seven, as in five, six, seven people that were still at work. So you got that many people out of business you have that many jobs paying at least $15 an hour and housing and food provided, supposed to be. <laughs> You'd say, well, you weren't that desperate right. for a job if you didn't want to do that. But that's hard work. In the sun, that's bending over. That's, you know, that's long days. Wow. Well, I have a question also is both those subjects are uh, pretty intense, and you've got intensity going on. But you were talking a little bit about, uh, earlier about you bringing levity in your story. Um, um, is, was that difficult to do, and uh, and is it something that you try to do? Well, it, it wasn't difficult in my first two books. It's a lot more difficult in this one. Um, you, you can bring some levity in the conversations between Will Mosier, the sheriff, and Elijah Khan, who is the... Um, his his friend from uh, uh, Vietnam that he was that he worked with in the Delta. 
you know, their conversations are, are a lot oh, less fun. His Will's conversation with his wife and, you know, Will's conversation with his deputy and, you know, there's, there's levity in those okay. areas. But I wouldn't say the book itself. Now, in, in my first novel, the whole thing has got a lot of fun because it doesn't deal with subjects that are, um, you know, as severe as this. Because, you know, when you've got drugs and murders and, and people that are truly evil, uh, it's hard to right. have a knee slapper. So more, though, that, uh, that would be just to get the reader to enjoy the company of that uh, character. Right. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, it, 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 you know, you get, I mean, I had one person, uh, a reviewer read it and, you know, they started off saying this flawed book. Well, I thought, well, that's a hell of a way to start a review. And I assume if you're that's in the first sentence, there's not going to be anybody reading that review. Um, and it became a, a clear to me that they were reviewing a book that they wished it was not this right. book. Um, it is not a psychodrama where somebody is, is uh, you, you're learning about the problems that they had because of their personality, which is so terrible. Then you all of a sudden learn about what their mother and father were doing to them and their uncle and their ex-boyfriend. And I mean, you know, I don't try to develop some of the characters to the extent that some people want. I have a, you know, to me, um, I want to leave a lot of who these people are and the place they are up to the reader. Um, one of uh, my teachers at one point that, you know, and I didn't actually start writing for, until about 20 years ago. Um, but one of my first teachers and real good mentor said to me, Reg, it's okay to feed your reader, but don't chew for them. Oh, that's cool. So give them enough information and let them enjoy creating their own world because it's a lot more real to them than what you imagine. I mean, once the book goes out, it's no longer my book. It belongs to the reader and they're going to build out of it uh, the people and the images that they want. I got to give them enough information so that they can create their own world because that's the most real to them. To, in my opinion, anyway, that's the way I'm trying to look at it. I don't want to go into depth on certain minor characters because somebody will all of a sudden be reading and go, I wonder what the hell happened to old Joe. You know, <laughs> damn, you know, I'd really like to know what happened to him. Well, um, I don't want to have a lot of dead-end uh, characters like that. Give you a little information because, the, you know, Joe wasn't really that important to the story, but you need a body and a name and a person to, to do something that furthers your storyline, but you don't want to go into a deep background with them. And I also don't want to write a book that is so long that somebody looks at it and you know, just kind of groans. Um, my publisher has said, you know, we think a hundred thousand words is plenty. Right. Yes. Yeah, that's enough. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you you look at some. I mean, I, you know, we both picked up a book, and you just think, 
I'm like, am I really going to ever get through this? So this is, you know, this is a, you know, this is supposed to, to be, give people a, a, a very interesting story with people that they will like and some people they'll hate. And I, you know, I like to keep it that way. I don't want to try to explain that this person who's just murdered four people is really deep down a good person. <laughs> well, yeah, of course, of course he is. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, what kind of a writer are you? Do, do Are you able to sit down and plan your day? Just go like, okay, I'm going to write um, 10 to 4 today. There's nobody home. Yeah. I'm going to write. Or do, do you have to be in the right mood? Um, no. Well, it's best if you're in the right mood. Yeah. Um, you know, I started writing while I was still running a business. Um, and so I had to be a lot more disciplined, uh, when I started, um, let's say, you know, in 2000, roughly, uh, um, I retired in 2012 when we, um, basically, uh, sold the company, um, so I would write in the morning for two or three hours every morning um, before I went to work. So early I'd write, you know, then on the weekends. Um, once I retired, then I have a much more flexible time, but I still write every day. I, I mean, I think writing is people say, well, you know, I'd love to, but I just can't write. And I say, that's because you don't do it. I mean, um, I once, uh, um, had, uh, one of my, my parents had, uh, a guy named Andre Segovia who was staying at our house, who was a classical guitarist of the greatest, uh, one of the greatest ever. And I recall when I was a young man and I said, cause he would practice, you know, and downstairs every day. I said, do you still practice every day? And he said, of course. Every day. Now, if you're a master and you're a violinist or you're a pianist and you don't practice, um, you know, what do you lose? I mean, I've just never known anybody that was as a writer or as a successful um, artist or painter or, and I've known hundreds uh, that don't practice their art uh, and their profession uh, every day. Well, what made you go to writing? Like, what was it? Uh, because you said you were doing another business, so you've been involved in other things. But what made you decide that I want to write a book? Because I read a lot of books. <laughs> I there you I, go. I, I have a I have a large library. I collect books. I collect uh, first editions. I collect and read a lot of stuff, and always have. Uh, so did my my parents. Um, so, you know, um, it was just something that I've always done. And, um, my roommate at, at Duke one time, uh, gave me the nickname of the one man conversation because I talked too much. And so <laughs> I figured, well, if you do tell stories and you tell jokes and you, you read a lot, um, you think you could put those stories down. And so, you know, I've just had a great affinity for that. 
um, if I was a great musician um, and had talent that way, which I tried and started, um, I may have done that. William Faulkner, when he was asked one time, you know, why a writer? He said, because I'm not a, a musician. He said, music is the first and the most um, native and essential art form uh, in the human senses. But if you don't have that talent, you don't have it. So go on, move on to something you do. Or were you talented? Uh, I think the way I look at Duke is they're the best, phenomenal basketball player. So do you know how to play basketball? <laughs> is that what it is? Basketball, too. <laughs> no, no. I was... Uh, <laughs> I was I was actually the the co-captain of the lacrosse team at Duke, but oh cool, uh, but being short and round, um, lent <laughs> itself to to basketball at Duke. The chess champion, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it, I always think that it takes a little bit of courage, but a little bit of a something to actually decide to try and publish something you want to write that I always try to figure out what, what was it that, that kind of initiated that or what, what got you the courage to kind of go, yeah, I want to publish this. And then to get the rejection letters all yeah. the time at first. Yeah. Well, right. And, and bad reviews. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, but I, I, I knew a lot of writers. I was friends because, at one time, I was the vice president of the North Carolina Writers Network, which was an organization that would encourage and educate and so forth people who wanted to write. We would have, and they still do, two or three courses a year, and they'd bring uh, writers and authors in to teach people various, um, you know, mediums and so forth, if you're an essayist or short story or whatever. So I did that for a long time. and took a lot of classes and learned a lot about it uh, to sort of learn the trade. Um, and, you know, after a while you take the plunge, but but uh, taking plunges has never been one of my problems. In fact, I at some point probably should have held back and not plunged quite so much. Uh, but I've always, you know, by my nature have been uh, – you know, uh, lacked a certain amount of reserve and caution, which is, you know, I think there was, I can't remember, I think, um, I can't remember who exactly said it, but life's journey is not to end at the grave safely in a well-preserved body. Rather, it is to slide in sideways, totally used up, Screaming, holy How sh- dare you? What a ride. <laughs> that sort of has been my uh, motto, I guess. So then your protagonist will be uh, the same way? Is that uh, what you would Yeah. My protagonist had the opportunity for a fairly easy time, and he chose something that was both personally dangerous and new and that he had no advantage in. And, in fact, his wife, same thing. It sounds like his friend, too, that's in the part of the security group. I know, yeah. well, well, his friend is a very dangerous man. <laughs> <laughs> well, it needs to be if he's going to deal with these cartel folks. 
So you had you had to study the cartel stuff too. That that's probably interesting kind of study research. Well, yeah. Well, I I had the uh, an interesting uh, uh, individual that I uh, met and was acquainted with uh, had an operation in North Carolina called Blackwater, and I oh was, really? I was invited and spent some time down there, so I had a an opportunity to see a. An interesting operation, to say the least. Oh, that's nice. That definitely helps out with your uh, writing, then. Yeah. Well, you've got to, you know, I mean, all of my books are based on experiences that I've either had in the course of my activities in my life or based on study. I mean, uh, my brother and I had a large farm, and and, uh, so I've have been involved in and done a lot of uh, farming uh, work and uh, various aspects of it uh, are I brought to this to this particular book and I interviewed people I interviewed farmers uh, in North Carolina um, I interviewed one fellow who uh, is a sweet potato farmer and I said well do you do a lot of sweet potatoes he said that's pretty good I said, well, what's that? And he said, well, we uh, harvested uh, 1.4 million bushels last year. <laughs> and I said, well, that's pretty good. And he said, yeah, that'd be about 35,000 tons or 70 million pounds of sweet potatoes. Wow. Uh, sweet potatoes are harvested by hand. <laughs> Probably uh, uh, so is, migrant labor then, too? <laughs> of course. So is, so is tobacco. Uh, so are so are cucumbers for pickles. So are Christmas trees. So are melons and pumpkins. And I mean, everything with the exception of soybeans and corn has a pair of human hands that are uh, either planting it or harvesting it or washing it and packing it. How do you like people to get a hold of you? Is it through a website? Do you have social media? Where Where's your favorite place for re- readers to? Stay in touch. Um, I have a website that's echaines.com uh, for writing. Um, Is that E period, C period, or just EC? Just EC, Haynes. Okay. And that's, that's my author's website. And other than that, they, uh, or through the publisher, through Spark Press. Great. We'll have that up on our website, of course, so people can find you with one click. Easily right. hunt you down, give you give you a review. Um, <laughs> well, based yeah. on the matter, maybe hunting me down is the term that we want to use. Well, well, but don't worry. We're gonna gonna make sure people know that you are in the cartel. This is why. <laughs> That's right. This isn't. This friend is just yeah. imaginary. Well, Come on, we know what's going on here. Um, how and so did did the pandemic interfere with your? writing process at all or does any of that you know when things are kind of in turmoil does that kind of interfere no no i mean you know i I took the same precaution that everybody else did but having retired 10 years ago you know my time is not bothered by being at home but you know before that i mean it would have uh it would have been a, a you know catastrophic for me because um in the business I was in, we had offices, three offices in China and one in 
Australia and Korea. Oh, and boy. That would have been really bad. Canada. So I didn't know I the was, cartel was in China. Jeez. I was wrong. No. <laughs> no. Well, there are no cartels in China, but but trust me when I tell you that it's a it's an economy that is have has a lot of really interesting power flows. I might do a book about that. I I mean we had we worked with like forty or forty five different manufacturers in China. And it's that that's you know, China's an interesting an interesting place. I think. Yeah. Well, you like to tread tread carefully and dangerous and all these things. That's you know. Yeah, that's right. Wow. Exactly. You have to write about Putin next time. <laughs> wow. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Just throwing that out there, so. you know. It's <laughs> yeah. Well, what is next for you? Do you know, or do you never? Is it just well? Um, I like like all good. Uh, writers of potential series, the end of this book um, closes on the porch of the protagonist where Elijah Khan said, oh, and by the way, um, you know, Dante, who was the cartel guy, um, has escaped and was freed by a group of people when they were transferring him. So um, stay on your toes, Will. So let's put it this way. You always leave a a back door in case it, if, if it sells, then there's lots of stories that can be told after that. Jeez, you know, they make a movie of it. You can get Michael here to play the... Of course, of course. He's, he's all that, you know, ninja everything. Yeah. You know. I like to be in front of the camera. <laughs> the camera doesn't necessarily like that, but... I have a faith for radio. That's right. Yeah. Well, I, I saw the thing the other night on, on, was it on History Channel about Jack the Ripper? Yeah, yeah you saw me then. I, I was, did. Yeah, I that's, did. That's cool. <laughs> well, I was, I was, I really got, they got a little carried away talking about somebody who was doing murders in South America and Europe and the United States <laughs> and Chicago. Yeah. Thinking, wait a minute. Wait, this, yeah. You know, they, they, um, sadly, what they did not do is, they cut all the uh, rebuttal stuff that I talked about because I rebut all that stuff. So the directors decided to not have that to make it sound good for the H.H. Holmes stuff. So yeah. I was kind of bothered by that. But, hey, you know, oh, well, I got to be on TV. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, as they say, the only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> They'll be talking for a long time. <laughs> well, it's been a pleasure. Um we want to thank you for being on the show. And, of course, we're talking well, with, with author Eldridge Haynes or E.C. E. Haynes. And, uh, again, it's a pleasure. Well, thank you very much, Alan. I enjoyed it. It was great. Uh, great speaking with you. Great. Thank you, Mark. Tired of wasting time trying to decide what to watch on your streaming service? Go to our website and look for the Martino Movie Reviews. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. 
This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.